Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? What's going on, Brother Mark? How are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. Um, I was planning to go to Milwaukee this weekend for the big conference, and um, there's kind of like a little bit of a superstition in the reef aquarium hobby about um, traveling around Sanjay Yoshi, <laughs> and um, it's called getting Sanjayed, you know, kind of like a, as a verb. And I've actually experienced this in the past, but um, he posted something on Thursday about getting to Milwaukee without any troubles. And immediately because of that, everyone said that his good luck was gonna be paid for by somebody else's bad luck. And it just turns out that um, my direct one and a half hour flight from Denver to Milwaukee had been changed without my knowledge to like a 10 to 12 hour saga of going from Denver to Vegas to Milwaukee all day Friday and all day Sunday coming back. So I got Sanjayed in the best possible way because I was stranded at home. <laughs> but I was hoping to make it out to uh, Macna and uh, see what was going on there and talk about it this week. And uh, unfortunately, I don't really have that much firsthand experience and information about the stuff. So we got a different topic. Uh, you want to tell them what it is? Yeah, things that we suck at in the hobby. Yeah, and I think <laughs> this will be things that I suck at things that you think you suck at and think that we kind of co collectively could just do better overall. Yeah, I think it, I like that it can include both because um, I think when I first messaged you about it, I was thinking about it more on a personal level. Like, hey, after all these years, what are some things that I still feel like I suck at? Um, <clears throat> just, you know, sharing some humility. But then um, as you started to uh, share notes with me I, I noticed you were taking it more also in the direction of you know in general in the hobby w as a collective what we suck at and I thought oh that's actually a good topic too so um, it's I, I think we can mix it up a little bit a little bit about us and where you know we feel like we could be better and also where maybe the hobby could be better or not the hobby as an industry as a whole but just well, yeah, a little bit of that and a little bit of just the collective whole of, you know, every hobbyist, I think. So. Yeah, you know, and it's one thing I'd like to point out is that if you're good at going acros, but you're not great at keeping fish, or you're awesome at, like, growing out fish, but you suck at certain other aspects of the reef aquarium hobby, man, like, don't feel bad. This is a, this is like an extensive multi-branching dendritic hobby that goes in all kinds of directions, and you shouldn't feel the need to be the best at every single thing, you know? And I think that's why a lot of reefers have specialized and you see, you know, tanks looking certain ways and not others. And, um, you know, like for example, someone who's a coral farmer, um, I wouldn't expect them to be a great aquascaper and put together an awesome display. But similarly, you know, someone who puts together really awesome displays, I'm not gonna be, expecting them to know how to propagate pe uh, corals in the most efficient way possible. You yeah. know, so I don't want anybody to feel bad if like certain things um, they're not really, really great at. Like I sure don't um, about my skill. I'm mean, gonna try to, to fill it all out, but there's always, you know, kind of little things that I'm, that I'm struggling at. Um, and I feel, you know, coll collectively, this is a saltwater aquarium hobby. And, you know, a few years ago, I was definitely on a kick about how much we just suck at really understanding salinity. You know, salinity 
is the culmination, the total of everything that's in our aquarium. And we really take for granted our, our salinity measuring tools and what that really means. You know, um, kind of going back to specific gravity versus parts per thousand or conductivity, there's no reason we should be using specific gravity anymore unless you're a brewer, <laughs> you know, unless you're fermenting something or you have a freshwater aquarium and you just want to get like a, a reading of a low concentration of salt to treat your fish. Um, we have all the tools, but like everything else, you have to know how those tools work and how they, the shortcomings of those tools in order to get proper salinity. Yeah, I, I'm sort of uh, old school with it where I've been measuring from an SG perspective for so long that it, it's a habit that, you know, when I look through my refractometer, that's the side I look at still, right? <clears throat> so, but I mean, it's just a unit of measurement, but to your point, um, it's not telling me a whole lot, you know, in terms of uh, what the makeup of that salinity is in a way so um yeah i i agree with you on that point i also in in a more general sense i think um i think people are finally paying a little more attention to calibrating things especially in salinity um or temperature compensation and these kind of things are starting to be more commonly discussed whereas like in the past i don't know uh, you know, I never, I think a, um, a standard solution to measure against, I didn't get one until probably five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, so who, you know, who knows what my salinity was before then. So yeah, I remember when I was younger and we only had swing arm hy hydrometers mm -hmm. and specific or, um, refractometers, handheld refractometers. I mean, those were $200 in the late nineties and that was a lot of money for a high school kid. Yeah. You know, we, we, we did our best. I'll just, I'll never forget, I had this one tank that I would ignore a lot. We didn't have great ATO solutions, and this was a 30-ish gallon tank, so it wasn't possible to put a float valve on the sump. But one thing I always noticed is like, when I would let the water evaporate down to a point, and the salinity was reading like 1.03, my corals looked so much better. You know, I didn't keep many fish in there, I kept a lot of inverts, and who knows what the actual salinity was. But after running that tank for a year and realizing that based on what I was measuring, when the salinity was higher, the corals did a lot better, um, I started really diving deep down into it. And I feel like, man, there's so many people who have calcium, alkalinity, and magnesium problems when they mix up their seawater. Um, they're aiming for 1.023 or 1.024. And if you're mixing up with cold water, which I personally feel you should do or aim for, it's not critical when you're mixing up your salt for better, better dissolution of most things, um, you are just low in salinity. And so what ends up happening is you have a lot of people thinking that, oh, I've hit the right salinity, but my calcium, my alkalinity, and magnesium are low. But in fact, they just need to use more salt. You know. Um, but aren't refractometers temperature compensated or no? 
they they should be yeah <laughs> again you know if it's an atc refractometer and if you have it properly calibrated it should be compensated but that's not i don't think that's a given um True. Yeah. it used to be something that was always on the front of the label but there's so many fly-by-night companies who'll just find a big batch of, you know, seawater brine refractometers and just, I don't know, switch out the uh, the little indicator inside. You know, who knows how really accurate they are. And now that peristaltic dosing of aquarium additives like uh, calcium chloride, magnesium chloride, and potassium sol- uh, carbonate and bicarbonate are the norm. Like, that is the dominant form of mineral replenishment for our reef tanks. People's salinities are drifting up. Yeah, I got bit by that really badly uh, a few years ago where I just wasn't paying attention. And uh, now I have on my iPhone a monthly, and some people will balk, like, or, you know, be upset that I say monthly instead of weekly, but at least just a monthly reminder to check my uh, salinity just to to look out for that creep, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I feel like... After temperature, salinity is probably the most important thing that a, any monitor or controller can keep an eye on, right? And so it's really alarming to see top-of-the-line aquarium controllers kind of push aside the importance of measuring salinity in favor of, you know, a bunch of water-level sensors which do nothing to indicate the, the rising chlorinity based on all this dosing that's happening in the aquarium and so yeah you know i just i just feel like we could every conversation about starting a reef aquarium or saltwater fish tank should be a good you know half hour primer on what salinity really is how to measure it and signs to look out for when it's too low or when it's too high we just all of us you know take for granted that um a swing arm or a refractometer or even a tabletop refractometer is just telling us a number and we just we just roll with it right we just treat the tool like it's infallible and um it's just it's the sum of everything in your aquarium and so it's it's the first place to start if things are too low or too high so i got a good question for you on that um when uh my downstairs tank was still acting up you know one of the other things i did was send off an icp test because couldn't figure out why some goniopteras are happy and some are not and they're in the same tank and they're right next to each other so i thought you know all you know go nuclear right like like explore everything and so i sent off an icp test and one of the peculiar things was it said hey your um your salinity is too low right and uh it told me to raise my salinity so i thought oh crap my refractometers need to be calibrated again but they were, so I took a reference solution and I tested with two refractometers and they both showed me the salinity that I was expecting. So uh, now I'm curious as to why my sample had low salinity. Mm. Um, I don't know, it's a weird one. And then the question was, well, could it be that my sodium chloride is low but other types of salts are high? Or something like that you know i don't know i don't know how, what they're i don't know if you have any insight on that from an icp perspective or not or if it's just um one know. thing i will say about icp is there's certain like they're they are they are fine-tuned they're fine-tuned to test 
elements within a certain range. And I think most of the tuning has been towards the trace elements that we can't test. And so there's certain uh, elements, I believe strontium is one of those, that's kind of used as a, uh, as a marker. That, that, you know, it's just, it rings so true every single time. And then other ones, um, I, maybe like, I don't know, maybe somewhere more of the metals, uh, they, they don't give as clear of a signal, right? So certain things within your ICP tests tend to be spot on every single time and you won't mm -hmm. really have to think twice about it. And I know strontium is one of those that um, is used to make sure the machine's in tune. And I can't tell you which ones are out of tune, but it doesn't seem uh, likely that a machine that is that sensitive is going to be as accurate at measuring uh, copper at two parts per billion as it is going to be able to measure a sodium and chloride in parts per thousand. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for a second, I thought I should go buy another reference solution. You know, maybe I'm calibrating against a bad solution, <laughs> but. Uh yeah, I don't know. The, the cool thing about having a, a reference solution is like you don't even need to necessarily calibrate whatever tool you're using. You know, if your tool is telling you that the uh, reference solution is 45, whatever metric you want to put on it, and you measure your tank and it's like 45 or 44 or 46, you know that your tank is the proper salinity compared to the aquarium. And so that's what we um, did with swing arms, right? Is like if you could find uh, a tank that had been properly tested you throw mm -hmm. your swing arm in there and wherever that arm landed permanent marker that notch and be like okay that's where i want the swing arm to be and then they were pretty solid actually right yeah i know there's been some some companies had uh attempted i think it was hikari had a calibrated swing arm hydrometer so oh, every wow. single one had like you know there's a little punch in the yeah. triangular swing arm each one of those was fine-tuned to that particular swing arm to give you the best um, reading. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, salt, people don't really mention salt unless there's a Turkish blend issue that pops up, right? But I think we should revere salinity and its measurement and, and what it means to the entire tank a lot. Dude, no one ever asks me what my salinity is. <laughs> no one ever asks what you keep your salinity at. They always ask. They don't even ask what you, your temperature's at. They're, what's your calcium and what's your alkalinity? Maybe magnesium, right? But salinity is the sum of all things. And uh, I feel like that's a great place to start. Um, you got one you want to uh, introduce? So if we're talking about like the collective... Um, wherever you want to go. Uh, I guess we can bounce around a little bit. Um, so, so one thing I suck at, but I think as a collective we do a little bit too, is um, small fish, right? Mm. Um, I think they're... That is so true. Uh, there's exceptions to the rule, but I mean, I tend to struggle uh, keeping long-term, you know, the little, the little fish, the little, and also small invertebrates, right? Um, I, a fish that I've always wanted to keep and it could also be partially lifespan is shorter who knows but like uh, uh, the parvulus uh, cardinals remember those yeah, guys yeah the glass cardinals I, th I um, think we've talked about that before I think that's more of a short lifespan thing because yeah. when you got them when you receive them there that, that's the, the 
You're right. That is a perfect point. We suck at the, the micro stuff, you know, or at least the mini fish and the mini invertebrates. When you go diving on the reef, there's so many little things crawling around, little fish, little shrimp, little fish, little shrimp. And I know some of the wholesalers and collectors will tell you, man, when they harvest colonies of acros particularly, there's so many things that fall out of it. <laughs> you know, shrimp, small fish, small corals. Um, yeah, I think our, our pumps and our, our, our tanks are just really fine-tuned for meeting. I think meeting. they need a lot of food too, right? Like small, small food size, but frequently fed. Like my dream is to have, I mean, the tank I have now, a six-foot tank, but scale down the size of the fish to like gobies and little blennies and um, and you know I would love to have all a bunch of just small fish darting around clouds clouds yeah. of tiny fish it really um, it helps the scale right like the sense of scale but um, I like where you're going with this it just it's I, I have failed at that attempt a few times now um, well maybe you succeeded for as long as that was possible but one thing that always comes to mind is one fish that I just was fascinated by when I started reef keeping. Um, it was mini reefing back then. <laughs> is um, the twin spot goby? Yeah. Let me ask you something. How often do you see twin spot gobies at the store? And then how often do you see someone who's keeping them long term? You know, or there's, going there's at them with the the specific care requirements, the way like a freshwater hobbyist would tackle like chocolate gouramis, right? Like just like, Peep I've uppers. dedicated a tank to these, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting food down low in the substrate for them. I'm, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, cause that's a tricky fish, I think. Yeah, but you see, I see them all the stores all the time in a whole selection of not quite nano fish but pretty small fish i feel like small wrasses they're just really adept at finding whatever life or morsels of food you have in your aquarium but so many of those nano gobies and miniature fish man when you go diving i mean you can see like 18 trimagobies just huddling around one colony of deep water acro and we just yeah, that was a, that's a really awesome point. I've thought about that before. If, if you really wanted to do small fish, one, you got to be focused on it. But it's not just you, right? It's every step along the supply chain. It's not worth it for the collector, for the exporter, importer, wholesaler, and retailer to hand, even handle a really tiny fish that might sell for 10, 15, 20 bucks and just, you know have a lot of losses associated with that sometimes they just get lost they simply get lost and this i think yeah. that what you're saying also really applies to the small shrimp and the small crabs because they are so many different species but one that always comes to mind is i see twin spot gobies they're not like your sleeper gobies right they're not like your cryptocentrist they're not like your valenciana gobies they're, they're, they need special care and attention, um, almost like a very small pipefish, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but you, I see them at the stores all the time, and you never see them in people's tanks, not long-term anyway. Yeah, and even um, I struggle with the tanks that we can buy in the States. The overflow teeth are so big that I, um, 
So I do keep green banded gobies in both my tanks and I love them, but I had to keep them in a nano and grow them out because they kept going into the overflow box. And I even tried some of that mesh rain gutter material. That's, you know? that's too coarse. Um, yeah, it's, it's like there's nothing you can do to keep them out of an overflow box until they get, I, I guess, fully grown, right? Yeah, you're not going to get grown. fully grown any anything like that. So... That's the, I mean, I love the biota mandarins, right? But I can't, they come They're in so, so small, small to start. Like you could probably pipette them into your aquarium. Yeah. And again, the overflow just claims them eventually. And so, um, you know, it's like I have the option of growing them out in a nano or I have the option of just getting some bigger wild caught ones, you know, so kind of sucks. Like that's the other. And then. You know, I am not a consistent reef keeper, so anything that requires like lots of feeding or lots of attention is not going to survive with my lazy ass. <laughs> I would so. say like one small exception was like be the green banded goby, the mass goby, neon gobies, which are captive bred. Yeah. But even if if they arrive too small, um, you know, you're not going to be able to put them in even an average reef tank. I mean, even like a 10 to 20, like let's say my Red Sea Max Nano, the overflow teeth are basically the same size as my 200 gallon aquariums. And with the water flow inside, man, they'll just get lost. And um, yeah, that is that is one thing that is really missing from the reef aquarium hobby. And I like why you put emphasis on it for scale, right? Because if you have a bunch of large surgeon fish, um, they can't swim through your, your bottle brush acro right and that's something we're we're really missing in the aquarium hobby so yeah that's a really good one man all right what do you got you know this whole thing about uh things that we suck at in the reef aquarium hobby it feels like almost like an opportunity to ring the bell of all our greatest gripes and our greatest hits on here on reef therapy and this is almost like back to last week is knowing the difference between the effect of adding food and the effect of adding nutrients, you know? So last week yeah. we talked about, you know, products that won't break your tank, such as adding copepods or phytoplankton or any of those bottled juices. And I'm over here dosing nitrates and phosphates and I can see the really direct impact. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wish I had a bioreactor or phytoplankton that could, you know, hopefully have more impact to the aquarium, but I bought five pounds of monopotassium phosphate for like 10 bucks and i make a one percent solution that's going to last me basically a lifetime yeah right versus a 20 dollar you know quart or pint of green phytoplankton that's going to last you a week or two and then there's you know how much of that what how's it how much is it really helping and so you know if somebody has a tank that's starved of nutrients and they add even the worst aquarium food their coral food to their aquarium and be like oh my god my corals colored up so much well what if you added one drop of phosphate <laughs> or you know one teaspoon of nitrate like would you have the same effect you know so i think you know if you wanted just kind of like a social exercise you know go to um a bunch of vendors of coral foods and look at the, all their reviews and then think to yourself was that tank nutrient starved Right. Yeah. It might not be that the food went straight into the corals. And I feel like I feel like you and I are the only ones people you know, really talking about this. 
you know, what is the difference between adding nutrients versus adding just straight food? And once again, I think the only real difference is if you're trying to spawn corals because your last name is Craggs and your first name is Dr. Jamie. <laughs> and you're really trying to fatten up the corals for egg production. I, I'm not convinced that or like raw organics from the tank, you know, unprocessed fish and other waste plus nitrates and phosphates aren't going to carry you 95% of the way toward that coral foods will unless you're keeping NPS corals. Yeah, I think it's I mean, if you're going to feed corals, you know, sure there's like a synergistic benefit of the stuff they digest is doing something good, right? But then the stuff that gets left uh, undigested or uneaten breaks down and becomes a nutrient source in a nutrient-starved tank. So then, you, to your point, how much did each one contribute to the cause, right? Um, to what you were actually trying to achieve. You're just right. trying to make your coral happy. Do you know what? There is a like so many things we talked about last week. There is a feel-good factor to accepting a story about how this nozzle is going to change your flow, about how higher pH is going to make your tank better, about how throwing in coral foods to your aquarium is going to... I mean, you, like if you have a child, right, you feel good when you feed them. I, mean, I don't have a kid, but I have fish and I have a cat <laughs> and a wife. And when I feed them, you know, I feel good. And I feel that it's like it's mostly that's what you're, you're buying when you're adding better food offerings, right? But what it, it really falls on the coral food manufacturers to demonstrate how much of a difference there is between adding nitrates and phosphates or feeding the corals or both or something you know in between you know unless you show me how lush it is um uh yeah just i, just I don't argue that you know i think feeding corals is beneficial but i think you said it about uh phyto actually last time is I don't have concrete examples of tanks where I say that one was fed those cor that the corals in that tank are fed regularly and the corals in this tank are not right from presenting two tanks like there's never been that divergence in in example aquaria on the internet or ones that I've seen in person or you know oh this is a tank clearly where they're dosing phytoplankton or you know so that's the part where it's beneficial, but then when you have exhibit B where there's a guy that's just like, I just feed my fish a ton and I've got a lot mm -hmm. of fish and his corals look amazing too, then show me like a concrete difference where I go, okay, there's a significant difference between these two examples that is directly attributed to feeding the corals directly. And there, I can't find any examples of that, right? I think... Mm -hmm maybe a higher success rate with certain corals would be true especially you know nps and all that that would be the easiest I example i know there's some listeners right now who probably like target feed their lords and their cinerinas and their scolies and they're like oh my god they get so big and so fluffy and i don't doubt it's because of the feet that's not what we're saying but, right and you might get there to those big just balloon style polyps on some of those LPS corals through feeding, but I think with just a little bit longer you could probably achieve 80 to 90 to maybe 100% as much of the effect through just straight up organics, not running a skimmer but feeding your fish a lot and letting their waste become the coral food but you know, like one perfect, like perfect example for me 
I've been growing a uh, strain of Blastomusa merletti for almost 20 years. 20 freaking years and I have it in a couple different tanks and I keep it pretty sheltered and there's been periods of time where I fed the bejesus out of it and there's periods of time I haven't fed it at all and right now when I'm in a period of like making sure to keep my phosphates and nitrates up um, that coral looks every bit as good as it ever did and in my kind of lower light LPS tank you know I used to feed the corals it's fun it seems really rewarding seems because you know we don't really know um and it just felt good, you know, yeah. to drop little sinking pellets into each of their big uh, fluffy tentacles, and it feels good. But I got a Blastomusu colony, Blastomusu wells eye colony in there that I've never fed, grown from a single frag. I just make sure that that, that, that water's not too clean, you know, and so... I know there's some some hardcore coral farmers who feed all the time, who swear by their foods, and I think you it probably gets you there a little bit faster because you're concentrating those nutrients inside the coral. Um, but I think we can get most of the way there with uh, uh, whatever fish waste is happening, even coral waste, what's happening in the aquarium, you know, natural life in the aquarium, as well as uh, you know nutrients. Well, I mean, that's what this uh, little extra tank I threw down in the basement was all about was I always keep angels, right? Mm. Um, and I never fed my corals. And I'm a busy person, so I wouldn't always notice if, let's just say, my angels were pecking and irritating my corals, for example. Um, <clears throat> and then again, I, you know, I was curious about feeding. Um, I didn't have low success rate with LPS. I didn't, you know, my angels were relatively well behaved, but there were corals that I just couldn't keep in the big tank uh, with those guys. So it was like one, a desire to keep the corals because you want what you can't have, right? Um, and then just, uh, I have been target feeding a little bit to just see if I'm missing the boat. And I do see in the micromusas and stuff that they definitely appreciate it, right? And they definitely grow faster. Um, but so so maybe I'll change my tune on it a little bit down the road because it, to your point I have blasto both species like that are common in the trade that I've grown from single heads into colonies without ever feeding them in my big tank right uh, so yeah it's it's definitely a journey that I'm curious on I just have not yet seen I you, you can't go on the internet and say oh that's a tank that needs to be fed I have coral food. no doubt that target feeding is going to get you there faster than adding the nutrients to the water. Right. But when you look at the cost difference of adding coral foods, of adding live rotifers and phytoplankton and copepods versus, you know, a pound of phosphate, of dry phosphate for like five bucks, you know, people want to complain that the hobby is really expensive. And I feel like there's a lot of um, discernment that we're going to be going through here. You know, like, yeah, okay, if you're spending $20, $40 a month on these live or concentrated foods versus nitrates and phosphate addition, um, that's where the huge price bear disparity comes in. You know, so some of these things will get you to a goal faster in some species of corals, but not necessarily better in the long term. Well, and so in your case, you have really high coral density and you have a large population of fish and you're still bottoming out. But I think for a lot of people with home tanks, they could just get by with adding more fish and that's fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, absolutely, absolutely. But um, kind of along those same lines, 
for a long time there, we really tried. We really tried to come up with metrics that would help us compare the differences between protein skimmers. And when it comes to protein skimmer performance, we know nothing. We know nothing, right? There's you know, one skimmer that pulls 600 liters of air per hour. That's basically the only metric we really have is air draw, right? That might have a grid wheel that chops up the skimmer, the air really fine with a nice bubble diffuser plate and a cone or wine glass style neck and just bring the froth up, you know, in such a way that it skims really, really well. And then on the flip side, you could have a thousand liter of, of air per hour protein skimmer that just has whatever needle wheel and not much reaction chamber and not much contact time that's not going to perform as much. Um, and so I feel like we really, man, we really tried it. We really tried there for a good dozen years to try to fix a number, right? With our, with our lights, at least we can know wattage and we can take par values. Um, with our pumps, we have, you know, kind of a ballpark of how much volume they push. And when it comes to protein skimmers, I mean, you see a lot of new skimmers these days, they don't even have an air draw rating. No, and I, I think the guy that got the best analysis on it was Richard Harker back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, where he wrote an article and he was doing countercurrent airstone driven skimmers because that's the only scenario where you could independently, independently control the amount of water going in and out of the skimmer and the amount of air going into the skimmer, right? Because with needle wheels, with the old school downdrafts, with Venturi's, if you slow down your pump, you also slow down the uh, liters per hour of air, right? Yep. Uh, if you increase it, both go up, right? So he was one that really tinkered. And I remember he threw bio balls in the skimmer to try to slow the rise of the bubbles more, like create an obstacle course for them. He did all kinds of cool experiments with them. But to your point, I mean, what is a good measurement? And then you look at skimmate, right? Is dark versus light skimmate? You know, is the volume of skimmate really relevant? You know, it could be concentrated. It could be watered down. Um I always think skimmers are sort of, uh, what is the word, uh, underrated? No, overrated? Yeah, underrated. Like, I think I think they manufacturers push you into skimmers that are much larger than are actually needed on tanks. Now, if you're trying to get good air exchange, right, you're trying to purge CO2, I can see that going with a bigger skimmer makes more sense. In my personal opinion, which has no science because to your point we don't know crap about um, measuring the efficiency of a, or performance of a skimmer and rating them to a tank size I like smaller skimmers because they're just more consistent like you you kind of know what you're going to get every time you open up that cabinet right whereas the big guys to me like they're you you like you're always on the borderline of overflowing them to get them to actually skim something sometimes so so yeah, I don't know. It's it's and it's all one over of the, the other board. things that I've really learned from using a ton of protein skimmers here at Elevation is that protein skimmers function very differently at a mile up, yeah. where the air pressure is sense. much uh, lower, but the air is thinner. And man, I had so many troubles with my NIOS until I really kind of figured out what it needed to f- function properly. It, it, where I'm at, I need really. Um, shallow water 
and it just seems to give me the right balance. But it would be one of those skimmers that would be running just fine, running just fine, and then boom, one day just totally overflowing. Um, but you know what's funny is like, I didn't put this on here, but aquarium maintenance is probably the thing we're worst at. <laughs> we are so bad. I, you know, let us know right now in the comments below how many times you've actually run a significant amount of like fresh water through your dosing pumps just to flush them. Right, just kind of get rid of any kind of buildup. I don't think anybody ever has. I do that that once a year, once a year. I just you know put a freshwater uh, reservoir at the intake of the pump, turn it on, or just prime it. it. Not to push through the lines, but just whatever's going on in the peristaltic head. No one's doing that, right? And so there is perhaps this magical tuning that happens um, where manufacturers are recommending skimmers for certain size tanks and they don't really realize this but because no one is ever going to clean that protein skimmer until it breaks a year or two down the line when it's like totally chalked up, choked up and their needle wheels like barely half of the volume spinning through the volute um, then it's running at the at, at the size of, or at the, at the level that it should be you know what I mean? People let their skimmers go so bad, so long, um, that eventually it kind of ends up like fine tuning for that particular aquarium. I'm so lazy that um, the downstairs skimmer started acting up and clearly needed to be cleaned. So I just popped in another skimmer I had on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, this will buy me some time to clean the other one. That was like a month ago. <laughs> so the other one's still sitting in a bucket. It is so satisfying to clean a protein it skimmer. Is. And, the, and the longer you go, the more satisfying it is. Because one thing that will happen over a medium term is you'll turn up your, you know, your outflow, right? You'll, you'll you restrict it more to get your water level to go up and go up. And you'll turn it up and you'll turn it up. And if you clean your protein skimmer and put it back on, you will be just floored at how much air a fully broken in protein skimmer that's been recently cleaned will pull. It's it's really super satisfying. Like we probably clean our protein skimmers more often than is necessary, just because I like to see the body being clean. You know, I just want to see just a perfect foamy white thing. Um, but uh, I am quite surprised there hasn't been a good airflow meter either created for the protein skimmer market or adapted from other industries um, into the aquarium hobby. Like, I'm, I'm quite shocked that that's not a standard. You know, people have uh, all these electronic gizmos and doodads for the auto top-off of their auto top-off. I don't know why a phone or a computer's involved and wouldn't it's beautiful steampunk uh, options available using just gravity and float valves. But uh, ATI, 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, they came out with a digital airflow meter that was tied into the pump. And you, you, you didn't even tune the pump, you tuned the airflow. Now, I don't know how accurate that was, but it was, I thought that was like kind of a hint of the future. It was so freaking cool. It had a really nice blue LCD display, and you just kind of dialed into whatever airflow you wanted, and the, the pump uh, just kind of followed suit. And I'm just like, for all the gadgets and gizmos and doodads that are available in the aquarium hobby that are not really helping you with your reef aquarium experience, uh, some kind of analog or digital uh, airflow meter is something that I would just jump on. I, I had mean, I one on my ATB skimmer, one of those with the little, you know, bead in there. That's yeah, that's yeah. I think that the company's called Dwyer. Yes. The yeah. only problem with those 
is they're either really low range, like a few liters per hour, or they're really high range, like a you know a thousand, or then they get into standard cubic feet per hour, CFH. It's really kind of hard, or I found, because I have a bunch of them. I have a bunch of them right now, and they're either way too small or way too large um, yeah. to, to, to suit the particular need. But that's one of those things. Um, yeah, that'd be very welcome uh, gadget or, or because it's one of those things. Is it helping your reef tank? Who knows? Is it helping you better understand your protein skimmer? You're damn right it is. Well, <laughs> and you might be able to say, okay, it's at 600 liters per hour. When you see it drop down to four or three, you could say, ah, oh, you know what? It's time to clean my skimmer. Could yep. be a multitude of things, right? Could be that the uh, mesh or the little pinwheel is all bunched up with crap could be that the air intake now has calcium calcification all, on it could be all kinds all of, of things the above. yeah all and the so above. it would at least give you something to be like oh hey why is it half as much i should do something about it yeah so that's a yeah good and point. that's actually i think you could start a company making one airflow meter right now yeah like with somebody. all the 3d printing like make one that you can mount on a skimmer you know yeah with a yeah i mean the thing is you like can swap make your out own. the uh, silencer with one that has one built in or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be mega accurate. You know, you just um, have it set to a certain level within the range of protein skimmers, which today is probably going to be about 600 to 1,200 liters of air per hour. And then you just calibrate it using a known good, you know, like industrial airflow meter. Um, but yeah, that'd be a, a really awesome one, um, awesome device. So if anybody out there is thinking about uh, something they can vent, um, go slap some stuff together on your 3D printer. You just need, you know, one clear tube, I guess, so you can see the, the indicator. Um, but yeah, protein skimmer performance, something we used to really try to describe, and now there's very little talk about it. There's very little talk about it. It's just how big is it? <laughs> just how big is it yeah i miss the i miss the narrow neck skimmers you know that had the high velocity of air so it just pushed mm -hmm. all the foam up and over all these wide neck skimmers i'm not not as f much of a fan of but i yeah. also get that now that we're pumping as much air in I, you know i I'm, I'm sure there's a method to the design i just i miss the old school real narrow tall collection cups and it just it uses like that funneling effect of the airflow to just have really we done a session just on protein skimmers yet i don't think so oh man we got to that to me that is a whole nother side hobby that you and i know we've both enjoyed between the dow drafts and the needle wheels um so let's put that on a roadmap but sure. what else do you have that you want to kind of uh, highlight or showcase about things that we're not necessarily very good at so I'll run through two real quick on a personal level so that we can then bounce into more of the collective. One is I suck at nanos. Um, I just feel like I do. Uh, it, it's one of those things where, um, and this goes back to consistency and the fact that I'm more of a neglectful reef keeper at times, but um, tangs are what keep me in the hobby <laughs> you know tangs are my saving grace in terms of herbivory and when you give me a tank that's too small for a tang i tend to struggle with my approach to reef keeping you know and whenever i hear somebody say nanos are so easy you just you know do a water change once a week i'm like yeah i know it's a five gallon bucket in five minutes but 
you won't find me doing a water change every week. Once so. a month? He says the guy who has the automatic water change system on his tank that is just doing like a bare like 3% dilution per day. I do um, that to keep the salinity down for the most part because of two-part dosing, right? But yeah, um, I don't know. I just, um, I've tried them through the years and I'm hit or miss with them. Uh, and it pisses me off because I really love nano tanks. I love Picos. Uh, there's one guy on the internet that has like a Pico that's been around for like 10 years. And it's just so fun to see like a six gallon tank that's, I think it's more than 10 years, but it's old, you know, mm -hmm. and it's still running and he's still in there bonsaiing everything. And I'm like, man, there's that, I have a romance with nanos, but they just don't feel any romance towards me. They don't um, love you back. Yeah. And then I just suck at photography. You know, I've tried to buy a DSLR at one point in my hobby uh, tenure, I've, you know, I had back in the Nikon Coolpix days, you know, we all got the Coolpix because that was like the, the 995. Yeah. Um, iPhone photography. I did enter that Reef Builders photo contest like long, long ago. Um, I did all right with fish for a while, but I don't know. I just am, um, I definitely, I see a lot of great photography online and it reminds me how bad I am at it. <laughs> so. You know, that's one of those things that I had down also is, taking photographs that are authentically representing what it is that you're looking at and also telling or being able to tell when a, a coral's just you know an image is pushed too far right you see certain coral vendors they must have a plug-in that just pushes contrast all the way vibrance all the way saturation all the way clarity and sharpness all the way and you see these pictures i'm like that's not even real that looks like somebody took uh you know a paint by numbers outline and just like yeah. filled in the color like just solid blood red and i'm just like that's not what corals look like but people we've talked about this before people see these pictures over and over and we do too in our instagram feeds or whatever our social feeds and we it, it's a, it's like a uh, like a backroom brainwashing and you start thinking your corals look like crap, you know? But we all have to, I don't know, like I have a range of color filters and I, I try not to use them. I try to photograph my corals when it's mostly daylight. But I have a light yellow filter. I have a regular yellow filter. I have a dark yellow filter. I have yeah. a light orange filter and a dark orange filter when I want to go crazy town, right? But I'm always trying to represent whatever it is I'm seeing and I feel like, Basically, the entire reef aquarium hobby is like, well, if it's not totally dark and totally blued out, um, an orange filter that makes the corals look like they're plugged in is good enough, right? So we need to be kind of better on both fronts, uh, like the pictures that we take and share, and then the pictures that we will accept from other people. Because this kind of ties into the other thing I was um, kind of want to bring up. In the early days of fragging, we the hobby came together and decided that we needed to tell the part the corals that were chop shop the corals that were you know kind of fresh frag but you know fragged from wild colonies and kind of grown down and the ones that had been like fully multi-generationally grown in reef aquariums so we used to be able to tell those apart and go to a magna in 2007 or 8 and ask the person like did you grow this out did you chop this from a wild colony or you know did you chop this from a wild colony and let it chill for a few months but now we're not even asking those questions anymore yeah. Is there a coral? What's its made-up name that's not going to matter in a few years? And how much is it? 
right? So it's kind of the same thing with the photographs is, oh my God, I mean, what, what would you estimate the, you know, the threshold for like dishonest representation of corals is online? Because I'd put it at like 75%. Yeah, I mean, I, I always joke in my brain about, it'd be like if in the 90s and early 2000s, we were all obsessed with just lighting our tanks with only actinics. Um, that that's what I feel like when I go online and shop for corals. And then the other side of it is, um, I think the chop shop mentality and these stores and their branding and their presence online and their culture and the stickers and the t-shirts is cool, but you can definitely tell that they've, um, obfuscated the, the origins of these corals. And I don't mean like they're hiding. I'm just saying it's like the, the, the lens of attention is no longer on the, the reefs, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Like there's a guy behind the curtain and that's all the coral collectors, right? That are collecting these corals that are transshipping them to the United States. It's like then they hit stateside and it's the whiz-bang, flashy, everything. Cho- you know, like they chop it up, they give it a fancy name. And I just feel like we're not in touch with the whole the thing that makes reef aquarium so great is that it's a replication of an environment that we're all so passionate about but we don't even think about that anymore you're not thinking about where it was collected what country it came from you know what part of the world it came from how Dude, deep it was nobody gives a crap about that all they care about is the uh this, you know, the garbage pail sticker or whatever fancy crazy name and and that's it. It's like we're 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 removed. Like there's just, a curtain. Just to add to that, I also think that people nowadays there's a reason we've got tunnel vision. And I feel like people are only buying corals that's gonna impress their aquarium friends. Yeah. Right? You know, if you find a coral that's just really neat and interesting, no, I've, dude, you, it's been years since I've talked to someone who 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 got a normal-looking coral just because they thought it was cool and interesting, right? It's really devolved to um, just the gram, right? The, the torches and the tenuous, the torches and the tenuous, and a few zoanthids. <laughs> I feel like a lot of our sessions kind of no, steer back towards that direction, but it's true because one thing that I had down is, uh, you know, keeping and appreciating uh, brown corals. We used to really, really care what the coral was actually named scientifically and where it came from and what was different about that coral that's what makes it really rare if you look right now in the reptile hobby man i'm jealous i am so jealous because they are more in tune than they've ever been with the natural environment and where their animals come from and what is the natural environment that they're aiming to replicate and we have we were there we were there. Now we're just completely turned around. And I feel like it's really costing us as far as like being able to really understand what the corals should really look like. And um, man, I feel like there's a whole generation of reefers who look at corals more on their computer or on their phone than they do in their actual aquarium. Yeah, I feel like the coral retailer gets way more attention than, you know, the people that collected the corals that they are selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of goes into, I mean, you mentioned Instagram and all that, but, and this is something I suck at, so I'll make it about me so I don't feel like I'm picking on a bunch <laughs> of people. 
but uh, one is budgeting, but also just the wasteful surfing kind of thing. Uh, you know, the the internet thing. It's and I hate to. I, people are gonna laugh because I've used guitar. My other hobby is, or one of my many other hobbies. I've got too many hobbies. Is guitar playing, but that's one that I also did at a young age before the internet went. You know, the, before the internet became a, a thing, right? And I just so I can hearken back to a time in my head of where didn't matter how many guitars you had you had one guitar you just played the hell out of it and you were obsessed with learning how to play different songs and then I took a long break and I didn't play for a while because life got in the way and then in in my late 30s early 40s I was like man you know because I always had a guitar that I would randomly pick up but then I got more serious about playing again and I and so I revisited that hobby in the new world right and then I suddenly I found myself watching a bunch of videos about gear, right? About different types of things I can buy. And then I started buying a bunch of guitars and I realized like I was spending all my time doing that and not actually playing the guitar and learning new songs. How many videos have you watched about guitar straps? Not many on those, but, <laughs> uh, but guitars and, and different yeah. effects pedals and all this stuff. And I had to conscientiously be like, I need to stop, right? I need to go back to the way I was in the 90s. So I still go on YouTube, right? But now I subscribe to channels where it's just a guy saying, hey, you know that one song on the radio? Here's how you play it. And so then I try to make a conscientious effort to do the same in the aquarium hobby. And it was a sort of a dead end. Like there's not a lot of content. And I'm not going to toot our own horn too much, but I wish there were like, more things like grief therapy where the discussion or the thing late at night when like hey there's nothing to do to my tank everything's clean like what I should be doing is cleaning my skimmer and not watching YouTube or but when I do want to watch YouTube have it not be about the latest gear or something else right like I, I want to acquisition acquisition buy 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 this buy that I got this rare thing I bought this I bought that like get back into the methodology or like somebody go and create a channel where you start talking about different geographic regions of coral reefs and what makes them unique from others right i'd love to watch a whole thing on madagascar and madagascar right and reefs in madagascar and then you know hey next week you're going to do one on i don't know sri lanka in that area red, red sea the red sea like seychelles mauritius diego garcia reunion <laughs> i'd like if you unsubscribe from all the youtube channels that are focused on gear and acquisitions, right? And and how to spend your next paycheck. Um, there ain't a whole lot. It's kind of sad. I really like that Reef Man dude. Like he makes some really good things where he get dives into Zuzanthelli stuff. Obviously, Reef Builders. I don't. That's an obvious one, so I didn't want to point that one out. But there are a couple of individuals out there that are doing really interesting stuff. But uh, I think as a collective in the hobby, we kind of suck at that, right? Like the focus is on how to spend your next paycheck the focus is on how to impress your friends with what you spent your last yeah. paycheck on you know if somebody was spending their paycheck on a two thousand dollar refractometer so they could really measure salinity with incredible accuracy dude i would be like okay you're dumb but i'm here for it <laughs> you know what i mean like that's a silly but i think that's of, why we don't see like hey here's a guy that's obsessed with pipefish you know and he's actually raising live foods right like he's the guy that needs phyto because he's raising totally yeah totally 
that would be a wicked channel like to have a, a bunch of different tanks with different types of pipe fish and just uh give me status updates on those tanks um gobies you know like you brought up the uh like uh two spot gobies which are very hard to keep but like if you put your mind to it and you dedicate a tank to them a biotope tank that like you don't care about the algae you don't care about the corals like your goal is to sustain that fish dude that would be so fun to watch you know i th- just as a, an aside i thought i i mean i could be remembering this completely wrong but i thought i remember a report about twin spot goby spawning and i think this is by japanese in the wild i thought i remembered something about the twin spot goby creates a burrow and lays its egg and there's something lays their eggs inside the burrow and they close it up and there's something really weird there like like it will eat some of the eggs the first one that hatches eats some i mean i could be completely wrong confounding this i'm gonna have to find that find the description but there's something super fascinating about the um natural life history of that fish and how it spawns i'll bet you no one knows that it's actually a crab mimic the yeah, where it, move, it goes the, like this with its the eyes. Way it moves like kind of side to side, yeah. or it moves and then it stops abruptly. And those twin spots are supposed to be the eyes of a crab. It's but it's literally trying to confound people. But yeah, the whole uh, behavior side of things, and um, you know, um, I guess uh, we have uh, a little bit more time. And uh, you know, one thing that we suck at is keeping starfish. I don't even see starfish in the reef aquarium hobby that isn't a sand sifting starfish or a brittle star. Man, a big, just burly blue linkia starfish or some of the really colorful fromias. We used to keep them. Yeah. We used to keep some of them, and the blue linkias have always been hit or miss. I've tried a few here at the studio, probably before my nutrients were up to give a good biofilm, and um, I had no no luck. But there was a time when once in a while, it was almost like that yellow sarcophyton, right? You see somebody's reef tank and they have a yellow leather, like, holy crap, man, that thing looks amazing. Every now and then, you would see a reef tank that managed to keep a real good blue linkia starfish. How many of those are imported every single week into the importer to the wholesalers? Every single week. That's a good point. Thousands. How many of have you have you seen one in an established reef tank that's lived a while? No, you know. So there's a whole phylum of of the animal kingdom in that, that pertains to reefs that we're basically ignoring, you know. And that's some of the richness that we're basically passing up you know i know we're all here for the corals corals are amazing but man some of the fromia starfish blue link is and some of the nicer serpents and brittle stars those things are cool we used to talk about those things yeah i mean it's funny i've the ones i want i can't seem to find right uh, you used to get in the uh, Florida Live Rock, sometimes you get lucky and get the bioluminescent uh, brittle stars. So mm-hmm. I had those once in my early days where I'm sitting in front, you know, watching TV and I just see blinking lights from my reef tank and I was like, what the hell is that, right? Um, I would love to find those again. Um, I haven't seen Fromias around very often. Um, I haven't seen, you know, another one I'd love to find is those little yellow filter feeding sea cucumbers. I see those. I you see do? those around. Yeah. I don't see um, those so much anymore. A couple of the stores locally, they never sell. And so they sit on them for a long time and they multiply and they have a bunch. They're so cool. 
They are so neat. They are so neat. They're one of the few sea cucumbers that will propagate and just, you know, multiply in your in your reef tank. But uh, yeah, you know, things have gotten so streamlined uh, in the reef aquarium industry. We're almost a, a victim of our own success, and we suck at keeping nanofish. We suck at keeping various invertebrates that aren't particularly beloved. And uh, man, I feel like. If a current person cracks open one of these books from the 90s and early 2000s, they're going to be wondering why there's huge sections on on invertebrates like echinoderms, starfish, uh, crabs, shrimps, and everything there. They'll be like, why is all this stuff in here? And that's something we really used to pay a lot more attention to. And I think it's um, the wholesalers, they bring all that stuff in all the time, but man... Last time I saw somebody with just even a nice red fromia in their tank, it's been a long time. I'm, I'm talking all this smack right now. I'm like literally thinking to myself, could I, should I try some starfish again? I gotta get some red fromias and some pebbles, some some pebble starfish and blue linkias. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm gonna give that a shot because it's just something to draw your eye to, to an animal that's not just a coral. Well, you know, it's and variety not too, right? Big variety, um, diversity. The mini reef concept back in the day wasn't a, just the corals, right? It was all the little invertebrates that came with it. And that's what made staring into one of these boxes of water so enchanting for me. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of new reef aquariums kind of boring because they can be really colorful. Don't get me wrong. And I can appreciate an amazing aquascape, but... Um, the variety of fish is usually low. The variety of inverts is low. So it's just corals. And most of the fish are there to do a job, you know. And well, so, you, can't, you can't propagate yeah. them. They don't necessarily eat algae. They're not fluorescent. And they're tough, you know. They are tough, yeah. They, they don't have to be. You know, sometimes, like, if we had tried to understand some of these animals as much as we've tried and achieved and succeeded in keeping corals, we'd probably have more success and have more diverse tanks. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of aspects of the reef aquarium hobby that we collectively suck at. Um, and I would say the last one I kind of want to bring up is the real function of different trace elements. If I feel like there's some responsibility to aquarium food vendors to demonstrate how phytoplankton versus oyster eggs versus rotifers versus, you know, powdered foods are better than just nitrates or phosphates or just show us, like do a little bit of research and just demonstrate how some of these products are different. They just, you know, they just read a list and throw out some buzzwords. Um, but the same on the same lines, the additive makers and the ICP testers, they've had, uh, dude, how long has it been? Eight years since ICP really kind of took off? We don't really have any tangible demonstration of what's important about zinc, what's important about iron, what's important about nickel, you know? And we, like, you can do some deep dives and just, just get some really tiny blurbs about what those things do or iodine. I think iodine is probably well characterized, but we could characterize it more. Yeah, I mean, no. I would say iron is a is another good one that's fairly, you know, fairly well documented from a photosynthetic value, um, photosynthesis. Um, and I, I think manganese is starting to get in there too a little bit. But but to your point, 
cesium, vanadium. I don't. I don't know. You know, I. I, I Potassium, potassium. I think every one of these trace elements has had a time in the spotlight at some point. I think potassium has had some big time, iodine, zinc, and iron. But we still just, we just don't have a really good grasp. I feel like instead of like a couple words about what each thing does, I could read a chapter on each one of them. Like I really want to dive in and understand a whole lot more like fluoride. You know, fluoride is similar to iodide. Um, uh, Captivate Aquatics is, I don't know if they're providing a fluoride, but it's like one of those elements that we just don't know that much about. And so we're doing these ICP tests for all these little trace elements and we're trying to achieve seawater levels. But I know it was like, he was at a, a presentation at Reefstock in Denver, whew, 2010. And Red Sea gave a presentation of how the cost of rubidium had had skyrocketed, and so they set up different tanks. And they one tank they dosed rubidium, you know, they had natural seawater levels of rubidium, and the other tank they had no rubidium, and they saw no impact, no tangible difference. And so they decided that rubidium wasn't critical to add to their tanks. I want to see a presentation about each freaking element. Right? If we're, if we're doing the test and we're trying to achieve natural seawater levels, let's dive deeper into each one of these trace elements, you know? And that's, that is a little bit for the nerds, a little bit more for the nerds, but I feel like it would bolster the importance of ICP testing. It would bolster and encourage people to pay more attention to trace element dosing and having better quality salts. See what I did there? Like tie the trace elements to the seawater mix. And um, it would just, you know, just help us flesh out the trace elements that are most important and the ones that, you know, maybe we don't need to be so worried about. Yeah, and then who knows? Uh, who knows if natural seawater levels are required, right? So, I think um, like you take the Triton method for example, where the goal is zero water changes, right? So eventually, you will likely deplete certain things uh, because you are not doing water changes, right? And you're topping off with very pure water. Just, just Quick aside, how do you not do water changes? What do you do with the detritus that builds up in corners? Like, I, I don't get that. You know, well, if you want to get, if, you're, if your tank is so big that you're, you know, whatever, you're doing one gallon water change in a thousand gallon tank to suck out some detritus, all right, that's cool. But it's to me, water changes are less about nutrients, except for my fish tank, it's more about sucking out that, that crap that you know that shouldn't be, be there. No, but if but you're anyway. doing if you're doing small just detrital removal, but it's really just a couple of gallons, right, in a mm-hmm. three hundred gallon system, that probably doesn't count. And you're doing it every few months. But um, point being is that you know, yeah, I could see where an ICP test comes in and says, hey, you should probably uh, add some vanadium because you've bottomed out on that. And I could see saying, well, sure, you know, it makes sense that I want to in a tank where I'm not changing out the water much, I wanna maybe restore things to natural seawater levels. But then my, my question has always been, if I am doing regular water changes and there's always a bioavailability of these elements, they may not be at seawater levels, right? Because if you're doing a 20% water change, that's not gonna get you from zero back to 100% on something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're still at least making those elements available. And so then the question is, 
how much do they really need? And who was it that was recently interviewed? And they brought up a really good point about copper, where copper is so scarce in the ocean that the reason it kills a lot of corals and invertebrates is that their systems are designed to scavenge as much copper as they can, right, for their physiological or whatever processes. So when you suddenly introduce a lot of copper, they don't have like a shutoff, right? So they they essentially overdose themselves and kill themselves. And I don't know if any of that's true. I just heard a guy on the internet say it, and I, then I went, well, that's kind of interesting, right? Because what 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 he's basically saying is, copper is needed on some mm-hmm. metabolic level it's just not in the concentrations that you know it could kill them right so right. then you take that back to like something some trace element that you never heard of before you started reef keeping <laughs> and barium right and you go well does it have to be at natural sea levels or maybe just that it's like available in some parts per billion that you know that it it it, it fills that void you know i don't know that's always a question i've had where again nobody can give me an answer and if you're one of those reef keepers that wants to squeeze blood from a stone right like you're the guy who is trying to figure out how to get one extra horsepower out of your 400 horsepower car cool i'm not i'm the guy that goes like i want to see tangible differences like again going to a photograph like i want to be able to say that tank's low in barium you can just tell see how those corals are real sickly oh okay Mm -hmm. yeah so that is something meaningful that i should pay attention to but if it's just a data point but these here's a tank with zero and here's a tank with natural seawater levels and they both look good Mm -hmm. then what are we trying to figure out here what are we trying to solve absolutely i guess the the last thing that we suck at um collectively is figuring out what's really important there you go figuring out what's really important to keep corals alive you know um i mean i don't want to sound like i'm not bad at anything but i've been working on everything that i'm bad at for a really long time <laughs> you know and i I'm, I'm i'm still like trying to figure out every one of these things and uh you know i'll throw it out there i'm bad at keeping nps corals and keeping them well fed all the time because it's not a reef tank i've done it before and had medium success and at the end of the day it didn't look like the reef tank it didn't look like a reef tank you know it looked like an invertebrate tank with some you know not thriving uh carnation corals um, so that's one thing I'm still like hoping to crack that code one of these days. And if we knew a little bit more about the difference, uh, you know, the importance of certain trace elements or the difference between food and nutrients, uh, maybe, uh, you know, together we could all push that envelope and uh, uh, make some, some tangible uh, successes with some of these groups of corals. Well, I know um, we're trying to draw it to a close. So I don't want to reopen the can of worms here, but I'll go for it go for it. Beyond, I mean, the only example of this I can think of is flowerpot corals. Is there any other corals that we can keep better today? Not NPS. I mean, take those out of the argument. But are there any corals that we couldn't keep 20 years ago as well as we can today? There's not a better example. Than the flower pots, right? Yeah, there's not a better example than that. Uh, You know, we were better at growing all the different corals. Um, God, I mean, this would be a stretch, but like getting parietes to look as colorful in the wild as they do in our home aquariums. 
but that's a little bit of stretch because you know we're not going to kill a Paredes. It just doesn't look as good. Um, yellow elegance, you know, or sorry, yellow sarcophyton. We're not keeping those yellow as we like we did in the past. But yeah, it's yeah that's a, that's a little bit unfortunate that we don't really know or understand the trick that all of a sudden made flower pots really really possible. I mean, I know there's two generations of reefers that are listening right now that are like what are you talking about well, i grow flower pots so you know i've been growing them for years and i'm like no you don't understand there was definitely a long period of time where you, there was one in ten that did good for a while and it was almost always that ore red there were certain red examples but if they were wild uh Ghanies, um they were just nope 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 don't do it don't do it um, so I think, you know, we're getting better on a lot of fronts and we've talked a little bit about some antibiotic treatments, um, to yeah. get, to set corals on a better path. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we're, we're killing it at Gorgonians, but it's mostly cause we're not really trying <laughs> Yeah, even the photosynthetic ones, right? We're not really getting a wide variety of photosynthetic gorgonians from the pacific you know most of our gorgonians besides isis i mean they're all caribbean but there's this one really cool genus from the pacific um i think it's called hyxanella and it grows into flat blades it's like gorgonia from the caribbean but the blades like the fronds are completely flat and they just kind of flap about and i haven't seen them in the wild i've only seen in pictures but that's one group of corals we're, we're just not even trying to recreate those yeah, yeah, I was just uh, trying to think about it. I wasn't trying to make an, a, a point about it so much as um, with all the recent advancements, you know, have we gotten better at certain things in that arena? And um, yeah, I don't know. It's not saying I mean, that the past was better because I don't think it is. I just think we've had a lot of inv advancements in technology and gear, but we haven't had great advancements on the coral front as much. I would say uh, breeding, right, spawning, uh, even propagation, they're propagating LPS that I think we had trouble propagating in the past uh, manually. Obviously fish breeding is a whole other thing. I mean, the fact that we have captive bred copper bands and tangs and angels is freaking awesome. But I was just trying to think of, you know, thinking about that whole uh, vanadium and barium and all well, that. Well, you know, know, okay, so to that point, it, it ties back into something that I mentioned earlier. It's like we're not appreciating a wider variety of corals. We have focused on the corals that we want the most at the cost of everything else. Like we keep 20, 30% of species that are represented on the reefs. Yeah. And so we've just narrowed our focus and gotten much better on those. So we don't even know how good or bad we are at so many other corals. Like, and, you know, we've talked about this before. I've never seen an aquarium grow in Astralogyra, you know, branching favid corals that, you know, it's not crazy colored, but it's just fascinating in its shape and its appearance. Um, so I feel like we've taken a little bit of the path of least resistance, you know, still looking at corals that we forbid, formerly forbidden corals like the flower pots and be like, all right, we're going to just going to keep trying at this and see what sticks and um, just kind of focusing on the corals that we are having success with. So that's kind of like a, a sticky question that you, you know, um, put forward. And uh, I'm actually going to be thinking about that now. Like, what are the corals that we're really sucking at? <laughs> we're not even trying, you know? I think the one, you know, one really cool one that comes to mind is Oculina from Tampa Bay, right? We're the, one of the few 
countries in the world who can get access to this very rare coral that only comes from Tampa. It doesn't even come from wider Florida. I mean, there's other species, but Oculina robusta comes from here. It's like semi-photosynthetic. It's got big, gnarly branches and almost galaxia-style polyps. It's not colorful, and uh, but we don't even know if we can really grow that coral. Like, I've had a piece for a year and a half. It hasn't died. It's grown a little bit. Um, but it's not growing as fast as I expect the specimens in Tampa Bay grow, you know? Yeah. And so I think we're just not even putting ourselves against those challenges to know what corals we're not good at. I know there's certain strains of elegance that I think people still struggle with. Um, I haven't tried an elegance in, well, 20 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't want to speak on it. But, uh, you know, I know there is... Is it the pink tips, or which ones are the ones that are problematic? Man, uh, pick, pick, a, pick a year. You know, Some years yeah. it feels like the Indo ones are abused, and other years it feels like the Australian ones are abused. I think it wasn't until Australia opened up and we started getting those examples that we started having a lot more success. Yeah. But I think the husbandry then in Indonesia picked up and got a lot better, and now it's not really a thing. And compared with some of the antibiotic treatments, um, we're and discovering that there's a certain kind of gall crab that will live inside the coral, and you know it won't come off with a dip. You have to really get in there and remove it um, once we eliminate those factors. But I think this is a great um, kind of summary of what we're talking about. We're we're taking the path of least resistance and um, really just growing those corals that are easiest to grow, that we are having success with. We are not trying to keep starfish. We're not trying to grow out isopora. If you don't know what that coral is, that's a shame because it's one of the most common, abundant, shallow water reef building corals in the world, right? And that just kind of summarizes our point. We've, uh, we're, suck we're, we're sucking at like taking on challenges. <laughs> we're, we're really just be like, oh, okay, what works? Let's do that. And that's what the, the hobby's become. We love the, the reef aquarium hobby, but I thought it'd be kind of cool to shine a light on some of the things that we could be better at. Yeah, and if I'd love, if even if it's just in the comments and links, I'd love to learn about, you know, those guys that are in the basement doing some tinkering with something different, right? Um, mm -hmm. sh shout out to, like, Porter, who was breeding uh, a lot of the... Uh, shrimp right that we like to keep in our reef aquariums he was doing that a long time ago a long time ago with no fanfare yeah. he's the only seahorse hobbyist i've ever heard of remember visiting his apartment in buckhead i think it was a buckhead atlanta he had two tanks full of seahorses that he had raised himself you know and that's the kind of dedication that we're we could use more of in the reef aquarium hobby um i think if there's one thing that i I would say it used to really suck at is learning from my mistakes. I have made a lot of mistakes over and over again, but I think I've made every mistake a few times now that I'm running out of like those kind of mistakes to make anymore. But I also, you know, I don't get outside my comfort zone as much um, as I used to. Uh, but yeah, you know what? I'm uh, talking about starfish and remembering what like red and pebbled fromias look like and a blue linkia starfish. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go chase down some starfish and see what I can do. If you if you find a good hookup for that, let me know because I would love yeah. to uh, go on that journey with you. I need some diversity, man. I need some you know things crawling around in the tank that are not fish or crabs or you know i mean corals don't crawl but you know what i mean like i need a and, and I, i've got kids you know 
they love that. That's the stuff that they get excited about. A big old, big old Lankia plastered on the front of the glass. That would, oh that would make their day. So Nothing like it. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on this journey. If there's anything you think we could be doing better as Aquarists or as podcasters, uh, go ahead and let us know. Make sure to rate us on your favorite podcatcher and uh, engage us in the comments on the YouTube channel. And thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys on, again on another session of Retherapy very soon. Yes, sir. Thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Talk to you soon.